Previously on Midlifing. And um, I, because I remember you saying with a certain amount of, I think, I think you even said, I feel proud of this. And which is, well, also you, so you would have been a lot younger. So you would have been in your 30s for sure, probably even early 30s. And, uh, you know, so a lot of young people, you were teaching this, uh, young girls, meaning sort of early 20s, late teens, who were um, who had been quite, uh, let's say, open about their sex lives in the context of, um, uh, of this particular module. And I remember you saying something like uh, the that you took a certain amount of pride in young women who ended up dumping their boyfriends as a consequence of doing the, doing the module because they realized that they were being objectified. Is that, is that, I know, have I conflated? This is a podcast in which two friends talk about the pleasures, absurdities, and imperfections of being human. I'm Simon Ellis. And I'm Lee Miller. Welcome to Midlifing. I have taught questions about how um, how human experience is um, sort of culturally embodied in a range of um, of of performance practices how the kind of the um the building blocks of humanity um in in certain types of of live art practice end up settling on the human form and the human body and then questions of the abject emerge so the things that spill out of it and then you know the the idea of of how the body can be used as a, a site of resistance in performance and usually it's it, it occupies that resistance by being um, out of kilter with uh, norms. societal norms. Yeah. yeah, you said live out there, and just for some, most people in other parts of the world would think of that as would know that as performance, performance art. art. It's yeah, really this. It's a very art, British uh, specific yes. term for performance art. It it is. It is. Um, I assume that they're basically uh, the same thing, aren't they? They're very similar, except I think performance art probably didn't include uh, multimedia practice in the way that live art did. So live art in the UK probably is a little bit more hybridised and will include some experimental, um, you know, videography stuff uh, at certain points in its history, right, which right. which might not have been in thought of art. as performance in performance art. Yeah. But 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 broadly speaking, it's yeah, it's um, it's performance art, live art, those sorts of territories. In the UK, there isn't. Um, there's something called the Live Art Development Agency, so that's probably why the term continues to hold because that's a, um, a, a an organ that um, funds and archives and publishes on these kinds of body-based practices. Not, and they're not exclusively body-based, but things that move away from um, a relationship to textuality, but also move away from what we might understood understand as um, choreographies of the body. So skill and technique are not usually, mm, that's not fair, technique, codified technique is not usually part of the landscape of this kind of practice. I hope that was a, a good enough 
pricey. Yeah, and so the, the and then so sex becomes part of those ways in which performance yeah, artists I, yeah. query or question societal yeah. norms. Quite often, because if you think that many of those performance artists were part of um, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and so, uh, effectively, they were exploring questions of queerness, um, you know, and 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 there would there was some stuff that certainly in the UK emerged out of the the AIDS crisis. There's, so so there's there's a reason that sexuality, human sexuality, would um, would would be foregrounded in that kind of practice. And so I remember so when you... you say I've spent a lot of time teaching sex in performance, it's not that I've been kind of doing a, a field trip every year to Ibiza and we go and watch a manumission show. Because I remember you saying with a certain amount of, I think, I think you even said, I feel pr- proud of this. And which is, and I remember you saying something like uh, that you took a certain amount of pride in young women who ended up dumping their boyfriends as a consequence of doing the doing the module because they realised that they were being objectified or that they were being abused. Oh, okay. You've conflated and remembered <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a fascinating series of ways. What okay. I will say is, um, in, <clears throat> while... The, <laughs> this is just backstory before I get to the thing I want to talk about, by the yeah. way. Yeah. While absolutely uh, performance practices that might have involved um, depictions of, or in some cases, very, very rare cases, um, actual um, sex acts, um, they were certainly not things that I was <laughs> training students to make. Um, and we would also be looking, you know, th- this was... this. No, it this was sort was of module... theoretical. But it was a... yeah, 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 yeah. And also it was a module where... It's again, without wanting to sound like I'm um, being defensive, that is that's probably pulling out one or two weeks out of a twelve week delivery, and and I would have just as I would have spent as as much time thinking about representations of femininity and taming of the shrew. I would have thought about you know that that idea sure. of of Elizabeth de Gay's writing about about uh, about. Um, about Shakespearean women, so so this it was it was less about I think um, representations of sex in performance, and more about how these kinds of works, and I mean that in the very very broadest sense, from Aristophanes through to to Franco B, might be utilizing resistant strategies of normative behaviors in order to ask questions about how how we function and yeah ex- exactly as you say there would be certain young women who would go hang about <laughs> i only remember one person who dumped her boyfriend as a result of this <laughs> isn't it and <laughs> my I memory was, was that there quite... was basically a long queue of them just no, dumping their boyfriends no. as a consequence of I... your module I remember one dumping her boyfriend and I remember her saying, you know, talking about it in in the seminar after the lecture. And I do remember coming back at the weekend because it was when you were staying. And, and, and I do remember saying, God, I was so proud of her. But it was it was less, I think it was less that she dumped her boyfriend and it, it was more about that um, that sense of agency that came out of engaging with cultural product and performance work and and it it's it's one of those moments where you you are reminded of the power of performance practice to make changes in people's lives that 
you know, okay. does something. So this is all very, I mean, and I, I'm slightly ashamed of my memory. That <laughs> I have quite a clear memory of you telling me this in the corridor at Northampton, you know, where it sort of overlooked that internal quad sort of part. But anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, so this I have is a, been teaching this stuff for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to uh, read you a quote from a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which, of course, is a quote from... Um, Shakespeare, and it's a mm. book by Gabriel or Gabriel Zevin, and I think it it's interesting, and it's interesting because I because of what I've just sort of how I've just set that up, which was a lot of backstory, uh, perhaps not as necessary as I, I needed, and I, I, I thought it might be. Anyway, this is this is from the book. It's so funny, and I think this is one of the characters, the main character, a, a woman who it's a it's a book about software developers or game software software developers software developers who develop games and they get they really they get really successful but it, it's fascinating it's a really really fantastic book uh it's a total page turner anyway this is uh this is one of the characters it's so funny you should say this because if you were one of my students so this is a, a woman who's gone back to teaching and she's teaching at a, a teaching undergraduates you'd be wearing your pain like a badge of honor this so this is in the present day this generation doesn't hide anything from anyone my class talks a lot about their traumas and how their traumas inform their games meaning their video games mm -hmm. they honest to god think their trauma is the most interesting thing about them I sound like I'm making fun, and I am a little, but I don't mean to be. They're so different from us, really. Their standards are higher. They call bullshit on so much of the sexism and racism that I at least just lived with. But that's also made them kind of, well, humorless. I hate people who talk about generational differences like it's an actual thing, and here I am doing it. It doesn't make sense. How alike, how alike were you to anyone we grew up with, you know? And I wondered, I just it, those two things, that reading that and that, funny memory of you which i got wrong but or close enough you, you might say and i wonder what that what what that triggers in the in the not in the modern sense of the word what does that provoke in you that a uh, little bit of writing you know re reflecting upon tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow because i kind of i i sort of I, I bump into there because the rest of the um it's from macbeth thank you that that yeah, it's okay, and and it's it's also the the re I I don't I can't do Shakespeare I can't do Macbeth as well as I can do Hamlet, but it gets on in the rest of that soliloquy that towards the idea of um, sound and fury signifying nothing. So there's that that sense of that's the other end of the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So I, I kind of it, it's it's interesting that your question is is informed by my knowledge of how. <laughs> How, how the, the soliloquy text, goes the, on. Yeah, how the originary text also ends. It's like, oh, so the idea of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I and and I wonder if because I'm not looking I'm not reading the book, I'm I'm sort of basing this on, you know, a title and a and a couple of sentences. Small bit of text, yeah. Mm. But but that's the first thing that emerges in my head. I go, Oh, um so what what's that saying about about the noise that doesn't mean anything? Mm. Um, is there is there something in that that you know is there is there an implied or, or perhaps not implied perhaps explicit critique of um, of that idea of of trauma narratives um, that idea of triggering that it's you know it's a sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm. 
So without reading the rest of the book, I couldn't possibly comment on that, could I? But it does, I, I, I do find myself going, oh, I like the idea that they call bullshit on stuff. Stuff that other generations have, you know, have just accepted because that certainly feels, it feels like a, a version of truth. Mm. Um, but I also think the idea of, that as a result, they feel humorless. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we were of a generation where um, alternative comedians were emerging as we were probably formulating our um, our comedic sensibility. Mm-hmm. Certainly here in the UK, I don't know how, how extensive this was into kind of, into Antipodean contexts, but... Um, we just got all the British time... stuff, really, like the young ones okay. and all that kind of. Well, there you go. So, so yeah. So, so it it is the same thing. So, so the the, the tea time comedians that I would have encountered as as a child, um, I think there was a guy called Duncan Norvell um, who played a character where he would wear, and obviously it was the eighties, so he would wear like a um, a, a, a kind of um, a pastel linen jacket with his sleeves rolled up, and and his catchphrase was "Chase me," um, and he would <laughs> say it in that uh, in that what we might understand as gay voice. Oh wow! So he would you know so he he would affect what we what we would understand. I think even now what we would understand as a stereotypical gay voice and says chase me um and this idea of so so he, he constructed a, a a world in which gay men were predatory but yeah. at the same time um something to laugh at so yeah. so he managed to you know in, in two words he managed to make them both a figure of fear and a figure of fun it's that whole like you know Ooh, don't don't drop your soap in the showers boys kick your hat on the way all of those yeah, yeah, ideas yeah. that yeah, yeah. if you bend over you will be you will be turned into a bottom by some uh, amorous top um to use contemporary parlance but that was that was like tea time tea time tv yeah so it was and, and, it was mains it was mainstream yeah. it was the norm yeah. it represented the norm and the, the way it, precisely the ways in which the sex and performers or live artists and performance artists were trying to somehow shine a light yeah. on or to or to um yeah. disengage from or to contradict you yeah. might say yeah Absolutely. And while, while I look back at the alternative comedians of that generation and go, ooh, that, that hasn't aged well at all, <laughs> mostly because so many of them came from, you know, hugely privileged Oxbridge backgrounds and there were, you know, all, almost exclusively um, white men, with some, with some exceptions. Somebody like Lenny Henry was sort of on the periphery of this and he was quite interesting because he came up through... Um, like a, a TV talent show, and ended up getting a gig on the Black and White Minstrel Show. So there's this, you know, seventeen-year-old. Wow. wow. Yeah, the seventeen-year-old um, black British comedian from 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 Birmingham. I think I think he might have been from Dudley. Um, basically, doing his jokes in between these people in blackface. Long, yeah, people in blackface. Yeah, which again was something that is it's bizarre that I can that I remember this. It, it's not that long ago. Mm. So I kind of think this idea of they are rendered humorless is kind of like, well, we would say this, we would have had the same thing said of us by previous generations because we weren't laughing at the things they were laughing at because we were sensitized 
in a slightly different way. We didn't think that Jim Davidson, another guy who was um, was a, a mainstay of, of Tea Time TV in the seventies and eighties, he did. Um, he, he, he spoke in abonics and generated this character called um, Chalky. So you know the joke is obvious, Chalky. It's a white, you know, a, a white concept. But of course, Chalky is is a black character, and he does that what we would think of as black scent in much the same ways that Duncan Norvell is doing the gay voice. Jim Davidson was doing the black voice, um, and whilst he didn't black up, he was vocally blacking up and positioning Chalky as an idiot, as an imbecile. All of the things that we understand minstrel, minstreling to have done to, to black men throughout history. Anyway, this is a bit of a, 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 ran, a rambly borderline rant, and I hope, well, it's not intended to be ranty, but it's rambly, to kind of go, I hear what is being said in the text that you read and understand but also, it's like, of course they're going to look humorless to an older, an older generation because mm. they should. Because they should. Because the way that the world works is that w- the stuff that is the lingua franca of one generation slides out of fashion and it just doesn't land. Anyway, that's my take on it. Thank you and good night. All right. I don't. I, I. It's really interesting what you've said because I. I think there's something I that sits well with me. That sense of um, we. I mean, partly the generational thing was, which is why would we laugh at the things that our parents found funny? I mean, there's 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 a simple generational thing there. Even I mean, uh, Peter Sellers was. I mean, you know, I kind of, I mean, found him vaguely funny, but it was, it was definitely where I felt like I was on the edge, on the cusp of being in a different world from what was being done. I mean, maybe with the exception of the Pink Panther films, which I, you know, kind of enjoyed, but, um, but it's, I think what I, it's really curious because it also circles back to this thing, which is um, being in different conversations and also the ways in which. This is a very obvious thing to say, really, which is because I'm seeing the world in very particular ways, as we as we all are, that I was thinking more that the perception of humorlessness was not that the other things were being laughed at, but rather that there was less laughing going on. And I don't and of course, I don't I don't know that, but I certainly I guess I have a sense of. I don't want to. Maybe I, I'm a bit a bit unsure about this. Which is, well, no, I'm ambivalent. Put it this way, because I think when language is being changed and people are being told you can't use that word, which of course we were being told that as well, that's an incredibly powerful thing to happen and a really important thing to happen. But of course, if it's being, if it's, if if that's going on all the time, uh, well, I don't don't know where I'm going with this, but it's it, there's a sort of a maybe there's a point at which there's the the feeling like I can't say anything out of fear that I'll be judged or I'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time, in a way that we certainly didn't have. And I guess I'm trying to ride a line here between going, this is it's really great what's going on. But also there are 
aspects to it which must be very difficult for young people to navigate, not least of all because if they get it wrong, they're more than likely to be, it's more than likely to happen publicly and then to be recycled online. No, I, I think I understand the line that you're following, but I, I'm not sure that this idea of being careful about the words that are chosen is as endemic as the and i'm just going to say the right wing press now just i'm just being lazy it's a shorthand okay so i'm i i know that it's it's more complex than that i don't think that notion of that that wokeness that the right wing press are so angry about is as endemic because if it was then andrew tate wouldn't be a thing that teenage boys were latching onto yes although although that goes both ways doesn't it Anyway, sorry, go on. In what sense it goes both ways? What do you mean? Well, you might say part of the reason that uh, young teenage boys are latching on to Andrew Tate is because Andrew Tate is saying the things that uh, they would ra- they would that in other circumstances they don't feel like they're comfortable hearing or saying. I don't know. I mean, I don't. Know. I mean, I hardly know anything about Andrew Tate. I'm not. Um... I think he's positioning it, and again, I I am not the expert at all. Um, and there'll be, you know, if there are younger listeners like in their in their teens they will be <laughs> listening to a podcast called midlifing <laughs> hey we 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 know there are strange folk in the world who do all sorts of things but but my understanding of of, of tate's rhetoric is is aspirational rather than re- reclamation mm. it's much more about let's let's just take what's ours mm. so, so it, it, it seems to be standing on firmer ground than somebody like Jordan Peterson, who seems to be speaking from a place of um, a a friable landscape under his feet that he's terrified of losing, Mm. rather than just the entitlement of, well, this is mine and I'm going to grab them by the pussy, to paraphrase. Donald. (laughs) Donald, a great leader of the world, um, who, just to be clear, when I say a great leader of the world, that's ironic just in case anybody misses that and thinks I genuinely thought he was good at what he did. Are you, uh, are you shaming the person that uh, wrote and, and misinterpreted or you think misinterpreted what you said? I think I probably was doing something jocular, uh, which may have been read as shaming, which wasn't my intention. Oh, we're a couple of humorless pricks, aren't we? I, I Well, th- I mean, I was thinking about the idea of... of 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 there not being there not being much laughter going on, mm. and I, I which was you know which was one of your concerns that you you you, you mentioned, and I kind of go well, is it that there's not much laughter, or is it just that the the f- I don't know. I was going to say, is it that the 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 comedians, not the comedians, the comedy is drawn less from linguistics, and maybe it's from you know it's from funny dances on TikTok or it's from pratfalls. Yeah, interesting. You know, have we gone back to a much more visual culture of comedy? Mm. I mean, I don't. That 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 would certainly make sense to me, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know any of these things in the sense that I, I. you know, I really don't, and it's. I'm. I think it's. I, I don't. I think the. It's really well written that, in the sense, it's saying I don't like saying this of younger generations. I've become one of those people, you know. And um, 
and I, that even that they're also expressing doubt about the idea of uh, humorless uh, being humorless, and and so I don't. It was just something that resonated with me, and I think actually the part that resonated more with more with me was the presence of the word trauma in the world more than the humorless part. Which is curious that that's the part that you you seem to be you know that's the part that you hooked on to. Uh, hmm. uh, I think I hooked onto it again. I I hooked onto it because of the idea of sound and fury signifying nothing. That you know the, the yeah. tail end of the of, yeah. of that thing. It's like so. What is being signified? Or, or rather, what isn't being signified, and what's the thing there? Because, uh, yeah. Also, I, I, I am ambivalent about the idea of trauma and triggers. Mm. I am ambivalent about it um, in my body, right? Because the stuff that I find upsetting, I wouldn't lay claim to being triggered by in a kind of truly psychological way. Because you know, I would think that triggering for me in my in the in the way I understand the language is the idea that it evokes something that might be like a complex post-traumatic stress disorder response. So um, I think there are things that upset me, and um, there are you know you said the friends that were around this weekend uh, did they have kids, and I went, God no. Um, and you know we've we've talked at length on the podcast about me and Bob um, not being able to have kids, and and there is there is still, you know, many years after having mm. reconciled that that absence in our life, there is still a sense that I find babies really really hard to be around. Mm. But I wouldn't say that I'm being triggered by it. Yeah, is that just because it's not in your language? Yeah, that extraordinary. You know, it's a, it's a tiny bit of text from a much longer novel, which is far more complex in how it deals with, um, uh, let's say, fame and uh, fate and all sorts of things which are um, uh, it's sort of full of moral ambivalence, really, the book. It's really is quite um, – I, I really just had a blast with it. But, um, but in one little text from it that uh, it can – provoke such a yeah quite a diverse conversation and with lots of different things that ends in this way which ends in, in you kind of reflecting on uh the difference between uh, where the line is between or why you wouldn't use the word trigger i should say uh in this yeah. particular and you know and I, I just you know that to me is fascinating and it's also what conversations are that's what we do when we have conversations and if Nothing else. That's what we do when we have these conversations uh, on this podcast. 